This is from Acts 9, verse 1 to 8. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found anyone belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice but seeing no one. Saul rose from the grounds, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight and neither ate nor drank. The word of the Lord. Heavenly Father, we, uh, we thank you for this opportunity that we have to come together as your church, as your body. So we pray that, uh, that your word would just be spoken clearly from, uh, from this message, from this text, and even just from the individual of Paul who you performed such a tremendous work in. May all of our hearts be uh, prepared to uh, receive this word, and may I myself as a vessel be just that, a vessel, um, only speaking what you uh, desire to have spoken, and may it all be for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, my last sermon was about like this, this figure, one of the disciples, who there really wasn't a whole lot to say about in the text. And so uh, it, was a very, it was a very difficult sermon for, for that reason. I didn't have a whole lot to go off of. And this sermon has been the exact opposite. There's so much to say about Paul. There's so much that is said about Paul. We see so much of his writings. He, he wrote most of the epistles in the New Testament. You know, think of Romans, 1st and 2nd uh, Corinthians, the Thessalonians, like all, lots and lots of the New Testament. Really widely, I think, easily considered um, a, 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 like excluding like the Godhead and Jesus, easily the most influential human being on the history of the church. And uh, yeah, so there, we, we know a lot about Paul. So doing one sermon about Paul is actually kind of difficult because there's so much that we could say. This could be its own series, but it, it won't be. It'll be one sermon, and I, I promise to, to keep it, keep it uh, you know, succinct. Um, so what are a few things about Paul? Just some background. One is that I don't know why I feel the need to address this. Maybe I'm just a little bit too nitpicky. But um, Saul never underwent a name change to Paul like we often hear. Uh, there are several figures in the, in the scriptures who did have the name change treatment. We think of like Abraham. We think of Simon Peter. Saul was just his Hebrew name and Paul was his Roman name. So he would use those interchangeably when he was doing ministry just you know, as a way of connecting with the audience he was speaking to. So that's, that's a thing. Uh, Paul was raised in the tradition of the Pharisees, which, if you remember, these were like the most hostile opponents of Jesus during his ministry. These were the ones who he referred to as whitewashed tombs. So Paul was a, had a very different and distinct background as the rest of the disciples, uh, Paul had, as Zach read, this uh, really dramatic scene of salvation where he's 
uh, on this road and gets blinded and he hears the voice of Jesus and he's, you know, taken to Damascus and he meets other disciples and he's basically called like, Paul, you, you're going to do this now. You're no longer this. I'm making you into a new creation. And then from there, especially in the book of Acts, we see Paul doing lots of different things. He, he uh, is able to perform miracles. He gets visions and dreams from God. He uh, writes a number of letters which would be canonized in the New Testament. And then we believe that at a certain point in Paul's ministry, he was imprisoned in the city of Rome and beheaded. Uh, and that was the end of Paul in a very, very short, short little containment. Um, so, so where are we going to go with Paul. I want to highlight a quick story, actually Paul's introduction to us as readers in the scriptures. So a couple of weeks ago, we read about Stephen, and Stephen was a really, really interesting dude in the New Testament. When we hear about him, we think like, holy smokes, this guy, he's young, he's like ready to serve, he's just ready to like serve the, the early church. He is smart, he's educated, he knows how to talk to people, especially the Jewish people, which that's his background. And you're thinking like, if you're, if you're watching like the movie of Acts, you're like, Stephen is about to be the main character. Stephen is, you know, about to be the main protagonist of this story. He's the one that God is going to use to, like, shoot the gospel to the moon. But instead, what happens is Stephen gets a reputation with some people who aren't really a big fan, and then he's, you know, kind of put on trial, and he's, and he's killed. He's stoned to death. And it makes this brief note that if you weren't looking for it in the book of Acts, you might not even notice it said that when the men, when the witnesses were preparing to stone Saul, or I'm sorry, were preparing to stone Stephen, they took their garments and they laid them down to this young man named Saul. And it's like, okay, well, what, what does that mean? There's, there, there is some contention about what this actually means, but the consensus seems to be that uh, when you stone someone, I've never participated in this activity. I hope the, the, you know, the same for all of you. But when you stone someone, much like, you know, being able to pitch a fastball, you need mobility. You don't want, you know, a bunch of layers on, a bunch of garments kind of blocking you up. You want your shoulders free. You want to be able to roll them over. And so it was customary that they would take their, their, their outer layers, their garments, and kind of take them off. And then you're gonna, you, you, know, you give them to somebody who, who can watch over them. You know, they might be expensive, cotton, lambskin, who knows? Plus, you don't want them to get all gross from the whole execution aspect of it. And so they took their garments and they laid them down to Paul, who was still Saul, and he watched over them as they threw rocks at this young dude until he died. And I, I, I thought about this, and I'm like trying to, to wrap my head around it. And I, I would invite you guys to also think that you're like in the, the, the early church Maybe you never saw Jesus, but you heard about him. You heard a lot of things about him. You, you know, decided that this, that his, this idea of him being the Messiah was a solid one. You, you decided to believe in him with faith. And now you're in this small little fledgling group of believers in Rome. And you don't have a lot of fans, but, you know, you get by. The community's great. It's a really, really loving place. And you see this man who, who has so much love and passion for Christ and so much potential to do beautiful, wonderful things. 
and he's dragged out of where he was in the gathering place, and he's taken by a bunch of enemies who hate Jesus and hate the gospel he has to bring, and they kill him. And as you're, as you're, as you're looking, as you're weeping over this young man who's, who's bloody, who's broken, who's dead on the ground, you look across the way and you see a bunch of people getting their jackets and putting them back on. As I imagine, they're like, you know, shaking hands and high-fiving each other. And Paul is right there, handing out jackets and patting him on the back. Like when we say that, that Paul was an enemy of the gospel, like that's the image that I've been kind of carrying around in my head. Like, it's not just like an enemy of the gospel, like this, this philosophical concept, this intellectual disagreement. No, like, he, he helped people kill a friend of mine. Like, he helped, he helped an egregious evil thing happen. He wasn't just, just passive. He was watching their jackets as they stoned Stephen to death. And that's how we meet Paul. Now, if the book of Acts was a martial arts movie, what would happen is probably the brother um, or the kung fu master of Stephen would challenge Paul to a duel. And probably at the end of the movie, after a little bit of tournaments and probably some cool montages, uh, the brother of Stephen would definitely be killing Paul. Paul is clearly the bad guy of the story. He's established himself as the antagonist. But instead, he's actually going to be used by Christ, to serve the church instead, completely flipping the expectation that we have on its head. It's an incredible thing that God does with that. He completely kind of subverts our expectations, but he also just does something that seems miraculous. He takes someone who was a seething enemy of the gospel and doesn't just turn him into someone who believes in it, but someone who literally will give every day and the rest of his life to the gospel. It's a beautiful thing. And so what, what, can we, what can we kind of make from Paul from this? I have a couple of points, and, uh, and we'll see how that, how that takes us. The first is that um, Paul was an enemy of Christ. Paul was an enemy of Christ, it's, it's really interesting when I think of the, the, the like origin story, if you will, of the original disciples. Because I just imagine there's something like so like salt of the earth and like homegrown about it. You know, I just see Peter and he's sitting in his boat and he's just, just like throwing out a line, just thinking to himself, man, I sure do hope I uh, catch enough trout today to uh, feed the missus, you know? Just like real simple life of just, you know, fishing and, and selling fish for money and just kind of, you know, very, very laid back, like blue collar existence, you know, just kind of doing his thing. And then Jesus comes by and he's like, hey, I see you're fishing. How would you like to be a fisher of men? How would you like to follow me? I could teach you some cool things. Peter's like, sure. And then they just kind of go from there. That's the salvation of Peter right there. It's like, it seems so like, Man, this is how it's supposed to be. But you think of Paul, like I, like I mentioned earlier, Paul was, was within the Pharisee tradition. He was, uh, he, he was part of the group that Jesus called the whitewashed tombs. He, Jesus said, if you're not more righteous than these guys, there's not a chance I'm going to see you in heaven. Paul was literally 
part of the class or the school of thought that not only opposed Christ, but adamantly uh, attempted and eventually succeeded in killing Christ. If you think there's anyone that Jesus is probably not going to dirty his hands with, it's going to be someone like that. And you have to think even like, Paul, at this point, being an educated and learned man, he knew about this weird Christian thing that was happening in the region. He'd heard about Jesus. And we know that just a couple days ago, he heard Stephen give this incredible sermon where he he brings these these Jewish people through the story of Israel from, from front all the way to Jesus. And he, he says, you guys are just like your fathers who killed the prophets. Repent of your sins and believe in Jesus. Paul was there. Like Paul had, Paul, Paul in a sense had this like rigidness to his heart that we don't see, maybe not because it's not there, but maybe just because we don't see from the other disciples. He He's not just kind of offered this like, hey, Paul, how you feel about, uh, you know, we could do some gospel stuff. Oh, sounds good to me, Jesus. Like, he, he, it seems like he's got an opposition that continues to happen, and he's hearing the gospel. He's hearing, and he's around the good news, and he's rejecting it. Like, he's, he's got, like, the, the, the main, like, course is sitting right in front of him, and he's a hungry guy. And he can smell every like delicious thing, but he, he doesn't want it. He spits in it and he throws it away. Like this is the kind of individual that Paul is. Paul is an enemy of Jesus. Um, which makes me, which makes me want to ask, uh, who do we consider to be our enemies in this in this day and age. Enemy almost seems like an outdated word. Enemy sounds like, you know, uh, Batman and the Joker enemies. It sounds like a, like a silly cartoonish word, but it's all over the Bible. So I want to ask, and, you know, I've done this before, so I want you guys to actually yell things back at me. But uh, who, who are your enemies? Don't name them. Like, don't be like, Mark. Like, that'd be really tough for Mark. Uh, so, but yeah, what types of people are your guys' enemies? What do we got? Nobody. What a life. Immigrants. Wait, what? Hypocrites. Oh, gosh. I was like, you're going to say that out loud? I mean, if you're honest, you're honest. Hey, let's talk after service. But geez, hypocrites. Okay, that's way better. Oh, my gosh. I was going to throw my old sermon away. Um, it's like, I'm going re, to recalibrate here. Um, hypocrites. All right. Who else? Who else? Very good. Thank you, James. Yeah. All right. Judgment, so judgmental of judgmental people. Give me, give me like one more. Clowns? All right. I hate clowns too. Yeah. I heard one more over here. Phoenix. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Phoenix is my enemy. Phoenix is all of our enemies. Um, <laughs> so I have this theory that when it comes to like understanding who our enemies are, we either like go way too far out or we go way too like close and small. And what I mean by that is like, I think that, you know, 
Nazis. Okay, like it's, I mean, I'm not saying that there aren't like Nazi sympathizers in the world because there are, but it's also 2021. Saying that you don't like Nazis is not a controversial statement. I'd, I'd like to think that we're all there at this point. Um, or, or, you know, the, the Ku Klux Klan. Like, again, obviously it exists. It's a problem. But, you know, they're, they're, like, the, these, are, these are people who have forsaken not just the Christian ideal, but almost like the world's ideal at the same time. So that's a pretty straightforward thing. And then the opposite of it is, uh, like, our enemies are the people who, like, irritate us. It's like the guy who, who like, talks to us at the water cooler at work or something like that. Where it's just like, oh my gosh, he's here again. Like, you could say this person was your enemy, but I, I think there may even be more to explore here. I watched this, uh, like, spoken word performance from this dude named Micah Burns. And he, uh, he performs this, this, this piece called Freak Show. And before he starts it, he says that when, when you choose to love your enemies... Like, not just the coworker who annoys you, but the individual who most deeply offends your very humanity. Like, someone who, who has taken, like, a value that is, like, very deeply entrenched into your core and just, like, just, like, throws trash all over it. Like, that person is your enemy. And when you seek to, like, most deeply and intentionally love that person, that is when you start to, like move towards the love of God. And, and then when he goes into his, his poetry piece, he essentially speaks on this, this whole premise is that heaven will be a freak show. And he talks about how bullies, uh, like childhood bullies will stand beside the peers whose self-confidence they shattered for decades. And they'll be able to be believers and, and lovers of Christ and, and made perfect and complete together talks about how like there would be priests who would sing in, in like harmony with the same like young children who had been like traumatized and abused by them. How maybe even slaveholders would be able to sit next to the slaves that they owned and, and, and harmed. Not, not because any of these things aren't inherently evil and, and, and depraved, but because maybe, just maybe, evil people can still be redeemed by the blood of Jesus. And, and it emphasized, this poem emphasized strongly this idea that heaven is not for the almost perfect. And heaven is not for those who are going to wipe the sweat off their brow and be like, whew, man, by the skin of my teeth, by the skin of my teeth, I made it, right? Like, Every depiction that we get of, of, of the kingdom of God, of everything we see from what Jesus says, even back to that famous statement of uh, the healthy don't need a doctor, but only the sick need to come and be, and be healed. Is this reminder that evil people like, are still loved by God. Like Jesus' commandment, I mean, all of us know it, love your enemies, right? Like that's, that's, a, that's a loaded thing. What does it look like when you're a, uh, I don't know, maybe you're a foster parent and you have to love the guardian of the child that you are holding 
Uh, and it was their abuse and their trauma that made that child have so many challenges. Like, what does it look like to love the person who wounded someone that you are now caring for? Or I even thought, like, what if you're like a cop? What if you're a police officer, like a good police officer who loves his community and loves being able to positively affect things like, you know, uh, like he loves being able to oppose domestic violence. He loves being able to, to hope that, that the, the society that he's in could, could, could prevail from the issues of substance abuse and things like that. What if you're a cop and you're a good cop and how do you look at someone like Derek Chauvin who just got sentenced to 20-some years this week? You think to yourself, like, look, not only did you, like, kill someone, not only did you damage a community, but you made my job so much harder. You made the people that I'm trying to serve act with, like, a malice and a distrust of me because you acted this way. Being a police officer is valuable to me, and you're making it so much harder because of your action. Like, how do you love that person? Like, that's the challenge that I think we see. And I think we see an answer in how Paul is (laughs) dealt with by God. Paul, who is part of a group who crucified the Son of God. Paul, who watched and participated, even in a passive way, in in the murder and the execution of Stephen, God observing all of these things as those whom he loves and these, these, this good news that he loves is being, is being scattered and is being shredded and harmed. God can easily look at Paul and be like, he is my enemy. He is my enemy. And yet Paul was loved by God. Paul was, was, was reached out to by God. Like this wasn't even this, this uh, it's, it's funny because when we look at Peter, it's like, you know, hey, uh, how do you feel about this, Peter? Oh, sounds great, Jesus. But like with, with Paul, it was like, I'm going to stop you in the middle of the road on a horse. I'm going to blind you. I'm going to speak to you audibly in a supernatural way. So you're going to know exactly who's talking to you, Paul. Like it's, it's, it's fascinating. God doesn't just like throw out a line to Paul and say, if he grabs it, he grabs it, you know, but it's on him. God like seized Paul, grabbed him tight. Like like you seize uh, uh, someone who's about to get hit by a truck, right? That's incredible. Well, it it just reminds me that when we think of Jesus' commandment to, to love our enemies, it's not Jesus putting on us something that he is unwilling to put on himself. Because Jesus is... And I think Paul is a beautiful example, very capable and very willing to love deeply his enemies. We even know through a word that Paul himself did not actually write, but Peter did, that the Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. He is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but that everyone would come to repentance. It's like an incredible amounts of love. And I think that we should, we should weigh this in the midst of the difficulty that we have. Because, you know, I mean, and we, and we talk about this often, this idea of 
division and conflict and, and separation and hostility and, and you know, side-taking that we see. I think that the ideas and the critiques of cancel culture have almost been like talked to death at this point. But I mean, we know that within this realm of responding to social issues, there's not really any room for restoration or reconciliation. There's no way to fix the problem. You're in the hole, pal. You just stay there. That's what happens. There's not really much restoration there. But I even think like on the flip side of it, like, shoot, I remember in, in some very formative circles when I was a, you know, a little baby Christian, like basically being told, John, as a Christian, the world will take the first opportunity it can to throw you in prison and crucify you like Jesus, like because the world is going to do that to you, man. And so I thought, shoot, well, <laughs> I'm not going to let them punk me like that. If, if the world hates me like that, then I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do them one better. And it wasn't to love, it was to, it was to respond. And so like, I think there are so many like hands pulling us in this direction of identifying our enemies in the world. But I, I, what, what would it look like to identify the enemies in the world that you have in your circles, those who most uh, offend your deepest humanities and like seek to love them, even if it was just intentionally praying for them on a regular basis or going out of your way to... I don't know, reflect some kind of Christ-like light to them. I don't know what that looks like. But we know that God loved the Ninevites that he sent Jonah to, even though they were a pagan nation who had killed millions of Israelites, but he loved them. We know that God loved the Israelites when they were constantly messing up and spiraling through this idea of worshiping idols and, you know, praying for forgiveness as soon as judgment comes. Like, but God continued that love. God loved Paul. Even though he was a Pharisee, he was a whitewashed tomb. He was covered in fake righteousness. He still loved him. That's my first point. My second point is this. Uh, the first one was Paul was an enemy of Christ. Uh, the second one is I was an enemy of Christ. Um, I'll tell you this. I'll give, I'll give each of you a little behind the scenes. I did not want to put this point in my sermon. I actually had another point that I had intentionally gone out of my way to put in instead. I don't like this point. I'm going to say it anyways. I'll tell you why. I think that this idea of representing en the, the enmity that believers have had with God, I think that for my personal experience, it was very difficult for me to understand that because the, the circles I was in and where I was getting my, my teaching from, it was very heavy on the, the you are a wicked and wretched sinner and God doesn't have to love you. In fact, he could choose not to and be perfectly just for it, John. I got a lot of that. <laughs> but the actual love, the delighting, the mercy, the forgiveness, the sins cast as far as the east is from the west, I got that from casting crowns. I did. You guys remember that song? Yeah. I did. I didn't get that from a sermon. I didn't get it from church. And so for me, even diving into this topic is like, I, I know how difficult it was for me to live and to carry around this, this, this heavy anvil of shame 
because it characterized my relationship with Jesus for a really, really long time. And I just like, I'm just like, I am not going to like start the, you know, drop the first domino that starts that for any of you guys. But I also don't want to spare you of something really valuable. Um, Paul understood this idea very well. I mean, Paul was the one who called himself the, you know, the chiefest of sinners. I'm, I'm, I'm the guy who, who's got some skeletons in his closet. And I think that like God was able to use that in Paul, especially as he wrote so much of the New Testament to kind of explain like the natural state of a human being is like an enemy with God. And that doesn't mean that you're going to be a, a, a murdering arsonist, like, you know, some like horrible, depraved, like human being, but it does mean that in the eyes of God, like the, the corruption of the fall that affects each of us, it's, it's great. It's really great. And it's really powerful. And I think that it's important for each of us as Christians to just sit and simmer in the reality that like God has loved us in a tremendous way when we were not deserving of it in any sense, by any means. In Romans 5, which is probably one of Paul's most, uh, most famous little passages, he says this. He says, For when we were still without strength, in due time Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet perhaps for a good man someone would even dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. For if when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. I think it's incredible. I think it's incredible. Um, shame is a really interesting tool these days. I think I see shame more and more in the people that I talk to. I think it's because we don't know how to handle it. I don't think we, I don't think we know how to deal with the instruments of shame. And in, in a weird sense, I mean, I don't know, I have my, my theories for how our culture kind of handles shame in maybe not the greatest of ways. I don't know. I don't know. But I know that as someone who constantly thought that I was under, that I was like an ant and God was almost like this child with a magnifying glass, like I was just like, man, I really hope that I can please him enough to like make it another day and to not get dropped off the hill and to not have the hammer fall on my head. Like I'm just praying for that so much because shame had become such an identifying thing for me. And yet when we read and believe in this, we don't have to throw away the fact that we are as natural human beings guilty before a good and perfect God, and yet also perfectly clean and perfectly complete and loved and not loved with this like obligatory love. I'll tell you this because I told myself this for years of my life. 
I thought that God's love, uh, if, I could, if I could compare it to something, it'd be like adopting a kid because you think he looks like really cute. And then when he's actually in your house, you're like, oh, this kid's a hassle. And so I imagined myself as like the kid that God adopted. And he's like, I can't take him back. I guess I'll just raise him. But like, I'm really sick of this kid, you know, playing video games all loud. And uh, I don't know stealing Capri Suns out of the fridge. And so I had this like concept of myself and God so wildly distorted when all I really needed to truly believe was that, yes, I am a loud video game playing Capri Sun stealing child who is just like, tremendously loved and delighted over. And in terms of like status and guilt, my guilt is washed, my sins are gone. And that is, and that is the promise we get as believers. So why, I, why, why are we talking about this? Well, here's my, here's my conclusion. When Jesus, uh, when Jesus was being arrested, we know that, many, many of us know that Peter, you know, kind of wild out, took out a sword or a knife or a dagger, and he just swung wildly, and uh, one of the guards got his ears cut off. In the Matthew version of that story, it's, uh, uh, Jesus kind of goes into like, don't you understand if I, if I wanted a legion of angels to deliver me from this, they could, but, but they're not because I need to go through this and kind of like gives them this like bigger explanation. But I saw in Luke earlier today, or maybe it was yesterday, and Jesus only responds with three words. He says, permit even this. And then he heals the man's ear. It's like Peter cuts the dude's ear off and Jesus just permit even this. And then he heals his ear. And what Peter didn't understand was that the kingdom of God that he was about to serve for the rest of his life would literally be full of men and women who were just like this guard. Just, you know, as corrupt and broken and in need of grace as can be. Because there's only room in the kingdom of God for broken and imperfect people, not for those who are working their way or climbing their, their way up the ladder or trying to save up enough good deeds so that their, their spiritual bank account looks, looks profitable before God. But just a bunch of people, a bunch of people who just realize something is wrong and I need to ask for help. I need to ask for mercy and I need to, and I need to trust that he's going to give it to me. Um, I have this, one of the reasons I, I wanted to, to discuss this was because I have this fear that for a lot of us, and I, I don't necessarily know why I wanted to go in this direction, but I have this fear that for a lot of us, our Christianity uh, is almost capped off by this like sense of purpose, like this mobilizing sense of purpose. If you were to ask someone, what, what does it mean to you to be a Christian Maybe they wouldn't respond this way, but maybe functionally in their lives they would demonstrate this. That, oh, to me being a Christian means, uh, well, my, my dad wasn't a Christian. He was a, bad, he was a bad father. So I'm a Christian, and Jesus tells me how to love my kids, so I'm going to love my kids really well. And, uh, you know, what does it mean to you to be a Christian? Uh, I, uh, I've been affected by angry people my whole life, and I, naturally I'm a very angry person. 
But Jesus, you know, speaks of, of me casting my cares on him and, and how to, you know, be sober-minded and how to be angry and not sin. And, and that's what I want. That's what it means for me to be a Christian. It's, it's to resist all these natural tendencies for me. And, you know, so it's all, all of these things, like, like our Christianity is almost like this thing that pushes us forward with an action. Like Christianity is telling us to do this and do it better. And that's not entirely wrong, we, like, we, we do believe that like, there are works, like there are fruits that comes from the faith that we have as believers. We should have a mobilizing purpose as Christians. But I think sometimes if that's the only thing that's really connecting us to our faith, it's not sustainable. It's a car that just keeps going. It doesn't refill and it doesn't get maintenance. It just goes. And eventually it just burns out because that's how things work. And I, I think that that's what I see is that we, we have this Christian purpose that we're just charging into the world with, whether it's loving our neighbors, whether it's working hard, whether it's being good parents, being good children, you know, tithing to the church, whatever. But eventually we get tired. Eventually that gets hard to just keep our backs full of work. And I think like, Maybe there's a benefit every now and then to just sit and reflect and think, what I'm doing is not all there is. I'm not a Christian because I'm doing everything right. In fact, sometimes we just suck. We're just not good at doing stuff. And so like, what would we do if we just sit and reflect and we think, I did not meet God's expectations, but he still loves me a ton. Before I was ever focused on fixing any of the negative things that, I, that my life is marked by, before I was ever enlightened enough to fix anything, Jesus loves me deeply and richly. That my hands were guilty and my heart was guilty and yet now Jesus has died for me and he's forgiven me of everything that I've done and everything that I will do and I'm good now. I'm clean. I'm complete. I'm a full person. That's the story of Paul, right? A distorted man, a corrupt man, a man with blood on his hands who was redeemed and called by Jesus. In 1 Timothy, Paul says this, this is a trustworthy saying, and everyone should accept it. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, and I am the worst of them all. But God had mercy on me so that Christ Jesus could use me as a prime example of his great patience with even the worst sinners. Then others will realize that they too can believe in him and receive eternal life. All honor and glory to God forever and ever. He is the eternal king, the unseen one who never dies. He alone is God. Amen. So I think we should reflect on this as we go into communion, as we, as we join around the Lord's Supper. Let's reflect on this incredible representation that Jesus um, paid the cost, the great cost, and endured the pain, the great pain, and he allowed his blood to be spilled and his body to be broken so that he could seek out the lost and unworthy and call them his own.
And what I love is that even as we're gathered and even as we're cleaned, we're not cleaned up as like single individual people. We're brought into this larger body and this larger collective. And I had this thought when I was talking to Thomas a few days ago, like we get the pleasure and the, and the, and the privilege of being able to come to the Lord's Supper. And there are millions of churches in the world who are doing this same thing in the name of redeemed people coming to do this in, in, in memorial and in, and in like affection for Christ, to experience the Lord's Supper, to experience and, and, and literally be filled with Christ's sacrifice. And this is something that's been happening for thousands of years, just incredible. So I pray that you would come. I pray that if you have um, looked to Jesus with faith um, and believed in him, that you would come and take communion. Um, so as we conclude now, uh, I, want, I want all of us to take a time of confession. I'm going to start that prayer. Um, and then we'll have two minutes of silence. Just speak to God. Whatever, whatever's been stirred up, whatever, whatever thoughts have been coming to you, like just let's speak to the Lord together. Let's come, let, let's, let's you know, pull back the rug or maybe we've been hiding a couple things and, and speak to him candidly. Um, after that two minutes, uh, Mike, or I'm sorry, not Mike, Jason is going to lead us in uh, musical worship. We'll come up for the Lord's Supper and then uh, you'll have the opportunity to give tablets in the back. Let me pray. Father God, I thank you for, uh, I don't know, God, I think in a personal sense, I'm, I'm really grateful that you have helped me through a lot of darker times of just not understanding you and not believing in you um, as I should have. Um, God, I pray that whoever's here who loves you and, and really longs for you but is just really weighed down by either shame or or apathy, or, or whatever it is, where they just they're they're longing for you, but they just can't get past this this hurdle. May you help them. May you help all of us, just through your Holy Spirit, to speak and to understand where you're kind of leading us right now. Um, help us to speak to you honestly, candidly, and uh, may we be assured of your forgiveness as we confess our sins, um, as Christ has paid a price for us and we are forgiven if we believe in him.